It was the Christmas season. I was in the seventh grade. I was sitting in my living room with my mom and my dad and my brother. When the doorbell rang. And I was usually the one that would go to the door to answer the door. And uh, this time was no exception. And I, I walked to the door and I, I opened the door. And there standing in my front door was a Hispanic man. Not much taller than me. Holding a Christmas tree. And he said something I'll never forget. All he said was, Hello, I'm your Christmas tree delivery boy. And it was the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen in my life. Because standing before me was a man by the name of Efren Herrera. I see a couple nods. Not a whole lot of Seahawk fans here this morning because... Efren Herrera was one of my heroes growing up. He was the kicker for the Seattle Seahawks. He was an amazing individual. He was an amazing athlete. And he was standing in my front door, uttering the words, Hello, I'm your Christmas tree delivery boy. And I stood shocked. I think basically what you would have seen if you could have been a fly on the, the wall that day is a seventh grader standing with his mouth wide open. I was shocked. I was mesmerized. I was transfixed. I couldn't believe it. Efren Herrera came to see me. He came to deliver a Christmas tree. This is incredible. I was blown away. The next day I told my friends at school, not one person believed me. It was ridiculous. But don't, don't get lost in the details. Remember my reaction. I was blown away. I was transfixed. I was surprised. I couldn't believe it because one of my heroes came to deliver a Christmas tree. Now, this example is not perfect. It's far from it. But this is somewhat of what, what I want you to experience today when we stand and read the Word of God together. Because sometimes I think we take the Word of God for granted. Just a few weeks ago, I asked the students at Corbin University, how many of you would like to hear from the Lord? Would you like a word from the Lord? Let me hear, see a show of hands. And, and many, many people, just like you, raise your hand. I would like to hear from the Lord. I would like him to come and knock on my door and say, here's your Christmas tree. Are you with me? Do you know what? It's going to happen right now. Because every time we open God's word, he stands at our door with a special message to deliver to us. Will you turn with me to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, and as you're turning, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God together? And if you're a guest with us this morning, the reason we stand when we read God's Word is out of respect for the authority of God's Word. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let's pray. 
Father, while the example is not a, a perfect example, it's, it's far from perfect. We recognize that you have come today and you are, you're standing in, in each one of our doors. And you are, are here to deliver a very, very important and a very, very encouraging message. God, we will learn today that we have a reason to rejoice. And there are many reasons that we can rejoice today. And I pray that each one of us as we leave that we would leave with hearts that are filled with joy, hearts that are overflowing with joy because of this message that you have come to deliver to the people of God here in Christ Fellowship. And so would you encourage us? Would you enlarge our hearts? Would you uh, move away any, any, uh, any resistance that would exist to the message that you would have for us today? By the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do great things here in this place. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. This morning we continue a message from last week that we entitled, A Reason to Rejoice. You might call this, A Reason to Rejoice, Part 2. And last week we explored what I referred to as the backdrop of the doctrine of election. And I probably don't need to tell you that the doctrine of election is one of the more controversial doctrines that you would ever run across in the local church or in the Bible. And as we looked at the backdrop of election, we learned that our wills are free. And that may have come as somewhat of a surprise to some of you. Let me say it in plain terms. We have free will. We have free will. Yet our wills are paralyzed. There is a word that I have been really captivated with for some time now. It's actually two words smashed together. And I'll, I'll give you the, the, the whole word and then we'll kind of deconstruct it for a moment. The word is autonomous. Autonomous. The two words smashed together are the words, it's the prefix auto. And that's a Greek word that is translated as self. And the nomos is another Greek word that is translated as law. And so someone who is autonomous is literally a law unto themselves. And you need to know that even though we possess free will, you need to understand that we are in no way autonomous creatures. R.C. Sproul says, if God is sovereign, man cannot possibly be autonomous. If man is autonomous, God cannot possibly be sovereign. These would be contradictions. Dr. Sproul continues, One does not have to be autonomous to be free. Autonomy implies absolute freedom. We are free, but there are limits to our freedom. The ultimate limit is the sovereignty of God. This morning, as we continue to walk through the book of Ephesians, most notably verses 3 and especially verse 4, I want to continue to explore with you the backdrop of election by asking a critical question. This is a question that has been on, on my mind for many years now, and it's a question that I, I trust will uh, uh, perplex you and enlighten you and, and spur you on to study more. And the question is this, how free is free? If we truly possess free will, so long as it is defined correctly, how free is free? 
Well, please understand this morning that there are several things that that we as sinners face. The first thing that that we face as sinners is is we face spiritual death. When we come to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 in the weeks to come, we will look in a very detailed way at this verse that says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, we are spiritually dead. Stephen Lawson says it like this. In this state, unregenerate people are completely unresponsive to the things of God. Just as a corpse cannot see, hear, or make choices, one who is spiritually dead cannot properly respond to the things of God. And so if you have a a fairly decent imagination, you can imagine a corpse, a corpse that cannot see, a corpse that cannot hear, a corpse that cannot walk, a corpse that cannot talk, a corpse that simply put cannot respond to outside stimulus. Jesus says in John chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John Calvin comments on this verse. He says, it is generally agreed that Christ is referring to spiritual death here. He says, Christ shows that we are all dead before he gives us life. This makes clear what man contributes to his salvation. Close quote. And the answer is, he contributes Absolutely nothing to his salvation. And so we are spiritually dead. The second thing that sinners face is spiritual blindness. That is to say, spiritually dead sinners are unable to see the light of the glory of the gospel. John chapter 3 verse 3 says it like this. Jesus answered, and in this context, he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that's called a necessary condition. Unless you were born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus say that? Because sinners are not only spiritually dead, they are spiritually blind. Third, Sinners face spiritual inability. They face spiritual inability. That is, they are enslaved in sin and unable to come to Christ apart from God's gracious empowerment. John chapter 6 verse 44 speaks to this very plainly. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. It's impossible Fourth, every sinner faces spiritual alienation. That is, sinners who are spiritually dead are separated from God and strangers to the promises of God. In the weeks to come, as we move into chapter 2 of Ephesians, we will study together Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that say this, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which he made in the flesh by his hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
You see, as sinners, we are spiritually alienated from God and all the the promises held out in the gospel. Number five, sinners face spiritual deafness. Sinners face spiritual deafness. In John chapter 8, we learn a bit more of the problem of one who is spiritually deaf. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 43. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He goes on. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. One writer says concerning this verse, the Jews do not hear Jesus teaching. They are so wrapped up in their preoccupations that they cannot perceive its truth. It repels them. Jesus speaks basically of spiritual incomprehension, not of any failure of intellect. That's important to understand because they lack the necessary kinship with heaven They do not heed the things he says. Why don't they heed the things he says? Because they have a problem with hearing. Their ears are not tuned in to the truth of God's word. There's a sixth thing, I should say, that sinners face, and it's a serious one as well. Sinners face spiritual slavery and bondage. They face spiritual slavery and bondage. Jesus puts it like this in John eight thirty four. Truly, truly. And I remind you, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he says, wake up. This is a big one. This is really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, prior to the fall, prior to the fall of man, Adam possessed the ability to sin And he possessed the ability to not sin. We all understand that, right? Before the fall of man, Adam could do what was right in the sight of a holy God. And Adam had the ability to sin before a holy God. However, after the fall, he, as well as Eve and every subsequent person, fell into a different category. After the fall, every person is only able to choose evil, which I might add is a free choice. All men, therefore, and women are subject to the bondage of evil. That is the radical effect, that is the radical pervasiveness of the fall of man. G.I. Williamson, in his commentary of the Westminster Confession of Faith, says, the regenerate man possesses the same absolute liberty as did Adam before the fall and sinners after the fall. He says the difference between an unregenerate man is one of ability, not liberty. Both are free to do good, but only one is able to do good. And that is the converted man. That is the regenerate person. And so what I want you to understand this morning is our depravity is total in its scope. Apart from grace, we are absolutely doomed. Could I put it this way? 
Apart from grace, we're not only doomed. Apart from grace, we are damned. And so until you embrace what the Bible teaches concerning the radical fallenness, depravity, and inability of humans, you will never appreciate grace. Let me say that again, slower. Until you accept and digest and embrace what the Word of God says about radical depravity, you will never fully appreciate and understand the depth of of grace. You'll never fully appreciate and understand the depth of what happened at Calvary's cross. You will never fully appreciate the depths of God's love and his mercy. And here's the kicker. Until you come to the place where you accept and embrace and assent to the truth of radical depravity, you will never truly worship with a full heart, which is what God calls us to do, to glorify and enjoy him forever. This is the portrait of radical depravity. Now, Stephen Lawson says something that has helped me over the years. He says this, if you truly believe and embrace every facet of total depravity, you will be begging for unconditional election. Think about that. If you truly embrace the the portrait of the, the depraved person, If you truly embrace it, you will cry out to God, God, please let election be true. So with this portrait of radical depravity before us, we are in a better position to to stand in awe of the remaining pillars in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that undergird your Christian life and truly give you a reason to rejoice. Now the first pillar... You'll remember, or if you were not with us last week, is this. It's the pillar we refer to as the preeminent blessing. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, you have been blessed beyond measure. And I want to just uh, review that with you. That preeminent blessing is found in verse 3 that says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This should make all of our faces light up. The preeminent blessing that we have in Christ. But I want to move on now to pillar number two. It's the pillar that we refer to as the priority of election. And I want you to to strap on your seatbelts for the next few minutes as we walk through this absolutely amazing doctrine that Paul unpacks for us in Ephesians chapter 1. The priority of election, look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If we're to understand and embrace the doctrine of election, we need to understand first and foremost that when we consider the priority of election, that its basis is in Scripture. You see, somewhere along the way, someone, and I don't know who we can point the finger at for this uh, particular error, is someone began to say, "It, it was John Calvin's fault. It was Martin Luther's fault. It was John Knox's fault. Fault at what? They invented the doctrine of election. Did you know that Luther didn't invent the doctrine of election? John Calvin didn't invent the doctrine of election. Reformed theologians didn't invent the doctrine of election. Rather, they just found it in the word of God. 
And I want to have you turn with me to four passages, and there are, there are 40 and beyond that we could turn to, but just look at four with me to see that this doctrine has a strong basis in Scripture. First, the book of Deuteronomy. Would you turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7? And we're going to read these four sections of Scripture with very little comment just to show us together that the doctrine of election has its basis in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. One of my best friends who pastors a church in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, I should say, he received a call some years back, and it was from a, a lady who was making a, a series of inquiries to churches in this rather large community. And she asked my friend, I, I really only have one question for you. Does your church believe in the doctrine of election? And my friend said, yes, we do. And she says, well, I, I need to tell you, I've got a real problem with that. I've got a real problem with the doctrine of election. And my friend very simply said, Ma'am, I, I, I need to tell you in all humility that in the pages of the Old Testament, God did not choose the Moabites. God did not choose the Babylonians. God did not choose the Canaanites. You could look at all these people groups in the Old Testament economy. There's only one group that God set his affection on, and it was Israel. He set his affection on Israel alone. At that point, the conversation went something like this. Click. We need to understand that God chooses whom he chooses. And we'll see this as we look later in the book of Romans. Look now in one New Testament passage in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 beginning in verse 47. And this is a really a... a a pivotal verse in the book of Acts is I've already mentioned it was Israel that God exclusively sets his heart upon. But what does Israel do? Israel exhibits profound unbelief. And in the face of that unbelief, God turns his attention to the Gentiles. And we read that stunning truth in these verses. Verse 47, for the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, you remember at this point, the Gentiles were totally excluded from God's plan because God set his focus and his attention and his redemptive plan on Israel alone. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Do you know, I've had it said to me several times throughout my pastoral ministry, don't ever preach the doctrine of election on Sunday morning from the pulpit. Why? Because people won't accept it. They'll leave the church. 
What happens in this passage? The doctrine of election is front and centered. And verse 49 says, The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This is a doctrine that finds its basis in Scripture. And then turn with me to the the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. And look at verse 5 and 6, Romans 11, 5 and 6. Paul says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. One final passage in the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13, we get another inside look at the biblical basis of this very important doctrine. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God, what, chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Please understand today that this, these are four passages that demonstrate to us that the doctrine of election finds its basis in Scripture. But I want to move on to the bottom line of election. We've seen it has a basis in Scripture, but what exactly does it mean? A brief word study would help us to examine the word for chose or chosen in the Old Testament. The Old Testament word for election is bakar, and it means this. It means to choose for oneself. It means to to decide for, and it's all over the pages of the Old Testament. Election is all throughout the Old Testament. You say, what about the New Testament? The word for chose or chosen in the New Testament is the Greek word eklegamai. And eklegamai means this. It means to choose for oneself. It means to elect. It means to select out of a number of people. One of the preeminent New Testament Scholars and theologians of the 20th century, Louis Burkhoff, says this about election. He says that election is that eternal act of God, whereby he in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of people to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. That's what it means to choose. I want you to also see that the term election, both in the Old and the New Testaments, is always tied to a specific task. You see, God does not choose in isolation. God chooses people for a particular reason. In Colossians chapter 3, we learn what one of those reasons is. And this is one of those passages that from time to time I hear people say, more application, more application. Here's some application. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You say, what is the practical import of the doctrine of election? Well, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 shows several important practical imports. Jesus in John 15, 16 tells his followers who were with him, you did not choose me, eklegamai, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he may give it to you. And so those who are who are numbered among the elect are are elected for a specific reason. That's what we learn here. Finally, I want you to see that election is always a sovereign act of God. Election is always a sovereign act of God. One passage I would refer you to is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, that says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now, I promised you we would look for a moment at the book of Romans chapter 9. Would you turn to Romans 9? And of course, we don't have time to do an extended study of these verses, but I think you'll get the gist of what Paul is, is teaching here. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. He anticipates an argument. And typically, when I preach on the doctrine of predestination and election, I anticipate that there is a, at least a handful of people who are going to say, that's not fair. There's injustice on God's part. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And that's what Paul does here. In verse 14, he anticipates these objections. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And for all those who need an illustration, and I'm numbered among those, he says in verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he ever, whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The Baptist confession of faith. And you should know that the Baptist confession of faith, the 1689 Baptist confession of faith is modeled after the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Confession of Faith, I should say, penned in 1647. And what's interesting is if you put the two documents side by side, there's a lot of, there's a lot of copying and pasting going on. What you need to understand is we have so much in common with our, with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. And at this point, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith says this concerning election. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity... By the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Here's the argument. Election is not only a a Calvin thing, it's a Presbyterian thing. You know my response to that? It's not only not a Presbyterian thing and not a Calvin thing, it is a Bible thing. It is a Bible thing. It is a Bible reality. And this argument that we see in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith moves from the general to the specific. That is, God is sovereign over the the big things as well as the small things. He's sovereign over the macro. He's sovereign over the micro. My favorite quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I want to give it to you now. 
says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the star in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence that the fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. You see what Spurgeon's doing? God's got control of the big things, and he's got control of the teeny, tiny microorganisms. This, my friends, is the priority of election. I want to move now to pillar number three, what we're calling the plan of election. If you turn back with me to Ephesians chapter one, the plan of election. And as we read together, verse four, one of the things I want you to see this morning, isn't the word of God rich? It's like, my word, how much can we get out of one verse? The plan of election. There are several things here. I want you to see first that we are chosen by God, the father. We are chosen by God the Father. One of the things that we will face, especially in Ephesians chapter 1, and also as we study throughout the Word of God, is to pay very close attention to personal pronouns. And the personal pronouns that we want to watch for, especially in Ephesians 1, are the pronouns he, him, and his. All referring to either the Father the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 4 reveals whom the elect were chosen by. Look at it with me. Even as He... Now, I have to be the first to admit, it does not say God the Father, does it? It says He. He chose us in Him. So there's several combinations. It could be the Holy Spirit chose us in the Father. It could be the Son chose us in the Holy Spirit. But what we do is we let context be our guide. Back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So who has blessed us in Christ? God the Father. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him, that is God the, help me, Son, before the foundation of the world. And so verse 4 reveals that the elect were chosen specifically by God the Father. I want you to understand that God the Father has priority. He has the prerogative in salvation. God the Father has the prerogative of who he chooses and who he passes over. The Father demonstrates his sovereignty and salvation as he chooses his elect. Now, here's the common criticism. And if, if you're like me, you, you've uttered this criticism from time to time. And some of you may be uttering this criticism right now. It goes something like this. And I, I want to be the first to confess, I have, I have said this in my heart. I have also said it out loud to people a long time ago. You ready? That's not... Fair. And what you effectively do when you say that's not fair is you shake your fist at the heavenly tribunal and you say, God, 
You don't know what you're doing. It's just not fair. And here is the response that you will likely get. When you tell God that that's not fair, the first thing you need to know is you're automatically on thin ice. Whenever you respond to God in a way that says he doesn't know what he's doing, he's not fair, you're on thin ice. And here's what I've discovered. If, if you want fair from God, you go straight to hell. Who wants fair? I don't want fair. I don't want fair because I don't want to go to hell. If you want fair from God, to go to hell would be fair. And so we are chosen by God the Father. Secondly, we are chosen in Him. And we've already discovered who Him is. When God chose us, He chose us in Him. That is, He chose us in Christ. If you would graciously allow me to move into uncharted territory as we look at verse 5, which we'll begin to unpack next week. Verse 5 says this, He predestined us, That is, the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why does he choose us? He chooses us according to his good pleasure. He chooses us apart from anything that we have ever done or ever will do. That is, he chooses us unconditionally. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who some have referred to as the last Puritan. He was not a Puritan in particular, but he was one who, who carried the banner for Puritan theology until he died in 1981. Lloyd-Jones counsels, we are on holy ground here and we should take our shoes off our feet. You see, the, the typical evangelical goes something like this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's not fair. Lloyd-Jones says, no, no, no. Take off your shoes and listen and learn at the feet of the Savior. There's something else I want you to see in this verse, and that is that we are chosen in eternity past. I love to ask young people, when's eternity past? Young people give great answers. Most of them say something like this. That was a long time ago. Indeed, eternity past is a long time ago. All of God's elect were chosen, Paul says here, before the foundation of the world. You see it? Even as he chose us in him, even as the Father chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The word there, katabole, is the word that is translated as creation or foundation. When was before the creation or before the foundation of the world? That's before God sovereignly created the cosmos. Think about this. God chose you. If you were in Christ, God chose you before he created anything. That means he set his affection on you. He was loving you. You remember in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus prays to the Father that his people, that is, his elect, would have that same intimate relationship that he has known with God the Father and God the Spirit from all eternity. That's what he prays for you. And do you know that prayer request has been answered? 
that prayer request has been answered. Now, there are some implications of this plan. Absolutely earth-shattering implications of this plan. First, this plan reveals the depth of God's love for his people. That is, in eternity past, God set his affection on you. Think about that. Me? God set his affection on me? What do I know about me? Do you remember the portrait of depravity? That's me. And that's you. And God sets his affection on his people. Secondly, this plan reveals the depth of God's mercy. Peter, the apostle, talks about this depth in 1 Peter 1.3. He says, blessed be, I should say he doesn't talk about it. He sings about it. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How do you get regenerated? What do you do to get regenerated? The Holy Spirit does it to you. You see, one of the things that many of you were raised with is that you believe in order to be born again. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Here we see that God, according to his great mercy, causes us to be born again. And when my heart is born again, when my heart is regenerated, then I have the ability to believe And who gets the glory in that transaction? God and God alone. Finally, this plan should fill us with wonder and fuel our hearts to worship the living God. This is the plan of election. Number four, pillar number four, where we look briefly at the purpose of election. Again, in verse four, we realize here that we have been chosen for a very specific purpose, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Two things, holy and blameless in his sight. God chooses his people to be holy and blameless in his sight. Perhaps you've heard this from time to time. When you talk to someone who is not living like a Christian, They're not behaving like a Christian. They're committing all manner of evil. You don't have to shake your heads yes or no because I know you're all, yep, I know people like that. And here's the response you'll hear. Oh, you don't understand, Pastor. I'm a carnal Christian. I'm a carnal Christian. Say, let's see, let me get this straight. You're living with a woman who's not your wife. You're committing sexual immorality. You're committing tax fraud, you're, you're stealing from your employer, you're committing all manner of evil, and you say you're a carnal Christian? You're not a Christian at all. Why? Because God the Father chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight. That word holy, that should be a word that... that automatically jumps out to you it's the the greek word hagios and we we learned about that word in verse one paul an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god to the saints to the hagios god chooses us to be holy in his sight we are to be consecrated in his sight 
Peter, again, sings about this. He says in 1 Peter 1, 15, But he who has called you is holy. You shall be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and he cites from the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter is a singing apostle, isn't he? He says in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did God choose you? He chose you to be holy. But he also chose you to be blameless. He chose you to be blameless, a word that means without defect, a word that means without blame. And Paul uses this word in Colossians 1.22. He says this, that God is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Speaking of Jesus, in order to present you holy and blameless. You see it again? Jesus' death on the cross was to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. At the end of Jude, I love the book of Jude. We read these words now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you know that will be accomplished? That will certainly be accomplished for every one of God's elect. The Bishop of Liverpool, the first Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle said this, we must be holy Because this is one great end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks it of its power. And so you've heard over and over again from this pulpit that that we are delivered from the power of sin. We are also delivered from the penalty of sin. And one day we will be set free from the very presence of sin. This morning, I want to challenge you to to think back over your Christian journey. If you're a new Christian today, this might mean looking back several weeks or several months. If you've been a Christian like many of you for several years, even decades, you might have to, to tax your memory banks a bit. And realizing that each one of us stumble. Let's get a show of hands. How many of you stumble? Okay. How many of you don't stumble? Please don't raise your hand. We all stumble. So given the fact that we stumble, given the fact that, that we sin and turn to the, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of that sin, can you say that over the years, over the last several years, that there has been a steady progress in your love for holiness? Go back 20 years. Go back 30 years. Go back 40 years if you're that old. And ask, has there, begin, has there been a, a steady progression of, of my love for pursuing a holy life? Here's a question for us as a church family. I love the way that Ken put it. We are a family. We laugh together. We cry together. We serve together. We share the gospel together. We lock arms together. We are in this together as we make our way to the celestial city. Is obedience what Christ fellowship is known for? That's a tough question. 
is obedience the quality that this church is known for in the community? And if it's not, how does that change? How in the days to come can we come to the place where you have a conversation with someone at the gas station? You have a conversation with someone at Nooksack High School or Nooksack Middle School or one of the grade schools. And you, you talk to a teacher or administrator and Christ Fellowship comes up. And that administrator, that teacher says something like, man, that's, that's the serious church. That's the church that loves Jesus that's the church that reached out to us. That's a church that obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. Do pe- people think about holiness when they think about Christ fellowship? Or do they think about sin? Or do they think about scandal? Or do they think about recklessness? Or do they think about wickedness? Are we a church that is characterized by a love for holiness? One amazing Scottish preacher, Horatius Bonar, said... Holiness is not measured by one great heroic act or a mighty martyrdom. It is of the small things that a great life is made up. And I don't know about you, but that that breathes a tremendous amount of encouragement in me. Because you think about living as a as a holy man or a holy woman before the Lord who's pursuing sanctification. You stumble, you stumble, you stumble along the way, but you love holiness. You're in pursuit of holiness. You tend to think it's those great big things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn at the stake. Well, the chances of you burning at the stake are few and far between. But Bonar says this, it is of the small things that a great life is made up of. That is the little decisions, the response to your children, the response to those in authority over you, the way you conduct your life. It's the small things. God has chosen his people to be holy and blameless in his sight. My question is, is holy living your passion today? We're not done. We only have a minute, but I want you to look with me at pillar number five. And pillar number five is simply the the praise that election generates. I hope by now you've seen that the doctrine of election is is a, a, a mighty doctrine. It is a wonderful doctrine. And if you see that, you will see that this pillar is exactly right. It's the praise that election generates. That is, we were chosen to declare his praise. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. We are chosen to declare his praise or to worship. In order to understand this final pillar in this section of Scripture, we'll need to circle the wagons back to verse 3 to catch the, the significance and the magnificence of this final pillar. Look at it with me. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is, the doctrine of election should elicit supernatural praise. If I could speak from the heart as your pastor, if you're here today and you say, I am mad, and that pastor is getting a long email from me this weekend, He's getting a letter. I'm going to the elders. You missed the whole point of the passage. This doctrine should cause outstretched arms. This doctrine should send you to your knees. Why? Because the portrait of depravity says this. I never get in unless God says, I choose you. 
I go to hell unless God says, I choose you. That word blessed in verse 3 means to praise. means to praise. So we should praise him for the, the priority of election. We should praise God the Father for the plan of election. We should praise God the Father for the purpose of election. Here's the truth point. The doctrine of election gives you a reason not to complain, but to praise. The doctrine of election gives you a reason to rejoice. As we close this morning, I want to have you look at the portrait of depravity. I want to have you consider the the radical fallenness of mankind that each sinner faces spiritual death and spiritual blindness and spiritual inability and spiritual alienation, spiritual deafness, spiritual slavery. This is bad news. Yet, don't you love the word yet? Yet, God chose some. This is what's been on my mind this morning as I've prepared for this message. Yet, God chose some. God, I don't know why you chose me. Because there is nothing in me worthy to love or be chosen. Yet you did it. God chose some in eternity past and he gave them as a gracious gift to God the Son. I want to close by by giving you seven very brief reasons that we should be excited, and that's to put it mildly, about the doctrine of unconditional election. Number one, apart from election, I never would have received the gift of salvation. Never, never, never. Number two, God's unconditional election is made apart from human decision because the Bible says, I am born of God. Number three, God's unconditional election is made apart from human works. That's good news for us. That's good news for me, for sure. Number four, the pleasure of God is linked to election. Number five, unconditional election guarantees saving faith. Did you hear that? Unconditional election guarantees saving faith. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, He called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theologians refer to this verse as the golden chain of salvation. If God chose you, you're going to heaven. Unconditional election guarantees saving faith. Moreover, unconditional election guarantees persevering faith. And this should bring encouragement to you today. Are you struggling in the Christian life? Are you stumbling in the Christian life? Unconditional election guarantees that you will persevere. Unconditional election guarantees that God will preserve you. Finally, unconditional election eliminates boasting and magnifies God alone. I'll never forget the day I read this sentence in John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God. By the way, if you're a reader, mark that book, The Pleasures of God of God, one of the greatest books that John Piper ever wrote. It was his second book, and it is a it is a heart expanding worship treatise. Here's what he says God elects, predestines, and secures for one great ultimate purpose. 
that the glory of his grace might be praised forever and ever with white hot affection. This is why God delights in election. It is the great first work of free grace that takes away the final refuge of human self-reliance and casts man on the unshakable rock of covenant love. Amen. Oh, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a great reason to rejoice. My prayer, as you leave today, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, as we close, that your heart would be exploding with gospel truth as you contemplate these amazing realities. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we come to the table of your Son in obedience with sacred scripture, I pray that you would fill our hearts with gladness, that you would fill our our souls with praise, that you would realize, that we would realize that we have a, a mighty reason to rejoice because we have been chosen in Christ by the Father to be holy and blameless in his sight. God, we don't understand why you did it. We don't understand the deep mysteries of it. We know the scripture addresses it, but we just, we don't have the capacities in our minds, in our hearts to to understand them fully. And so we, as the song that we'll sing in a few moments says, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving us. I pray that you would be at work in someone's heart today who is either resisting these doctrines or someone who is not even a believer that you would draw someone to yourself, even in the quietness of these these times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we take part in the Lord's Supper together, we would like to invite you, if you, if you are visiting with us today, um, to share in, in this with us. The only requirement in the Bible for doing so is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. As we, we take these elements together, we remember together as a body believers what Christ has done for us.